Chapter Fourteen of Miss Ingelis by Gertrude Hall. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Reading by Matt Perard. Chapter Fourteen. Grace and Sita had a quarrel next day. The true cause of it probably being that both were tired from the evening before and enervated by the first hot weather, but the ostensible cause, Sita's deplorable lack of reasonableness. It began with her requesting Grace to stop writing and come sit in front of the glass to let her fix her hair like Gertie Stokes's. Grace excused herself and went on with her letter. Sita cared very mildly about the amusement she had proposed, but she had nothing better to do and felt the urge to use up a little of the nervous fluid surcharging her. Who are you writing to? she asked. To my sister, answered Grace, without looking up. Feeling Sita creep up behind her, Grace laid a hand across the sheet of paper and turned round with a frown that was ominous, had Sita been shrewd enough to see it. But she laughed out in silly glee, I don't believe it's to your sister, and danced out of reach in delight over the brightness of her joke. If you look over my shoulder, Sita, I shall tear the letter sooner than let you read one word of it. That shows it, doesn't it? That shows. Ah, Grace, caught. I've got to find out who you're writing to. You are warned, Sita. Don't come near me. It's my day for not caring to be teased. Oh, it's your day. It's my day for wanting to see what the model girl of the school is like when she loses her temper. You will, if you try to read over my shoulder. I have had more than enough of your bad manners. This was the first time in their close and overclose acquaintance that Grace had dropped a patient playfulness when opposing her roommate's invasions and impositions. Sita in an astonishingly short moment, turned sober, gloomily reflective, suspiciously still. It might have been guessed that a new light had, at a word, given to the past a new aspect. I suppose it's an awful strain on you and your good manners right along to live with us and our bad manners, she said. Oh, Sita, broke forth Grace helplessly. Go away, will you, and let me alone? You're not any sicker of me. I may as well tell you, Grace Ingelis, than I am of you, cried Sita, shaken by a sudden tempest. I've tried everything to please you. I've done all I know how, but I shan't after this. Wait and see. Now I know how you look on me. I won't be any such fool. Grace let her flounce out of the room without a word to stop her, then tried to forget the discomfort, the shame of their passage of arms, and center her mind on the business in hand. Needless to say, without avail. The letter, which was completed late in the night, and started the following morning on its way to Mrs. Beatty Poor, read thus. Darling Lydia, I am afraid that what I am going to ask you will be a great surprise, and a rather upsetting one, but I feel sure I can make you understand, 
and that as soon as I have done it, you will be willing. Here it is. I want you to send for me. I want you to write as soon as you receive this, and say that you need me, and that I must come at once. You must make an excuse, of course. I can't think of anything that would seem important enough, except that Beatty is dangerously ill. It would be a lie, but you will tell one for me, I know, just as I would tell one, if it were to help you, and there seemed to be no other way. And now I must explain why I want you to do this, and it will be very difficult to make clear, because, though it is so real and urgent, it is not altogether clear. It comes down to a feeling I have that I cannot go on living in this house. I can't breathe here any longer. I want to get away as much as if it were a prison or a trap. If I couldn't get away from it, having the will so strong to do so, it would be, as far as I am concerned, the same exactly as a prison or a trap, wouldn't it? That's what something inside of me feels and wants, oh, terribly, to be free. The reason at the back of this feeling is, I think, that I have been so much hurried in this last part of my life, hurried to the West Indies, hurried into my engagement, hurried to this house, and soon to be hurried into marriage, hurried until something inside of me has shrieked as if it were going insane, for quiet, for time to think, time to see, and know what I am about. And those things I shall never find in this house. The influences are too strong. Don't think, Lydia, dearest, that this is just a mood and that it will pass. It has been growing for a long time. Almost from the hour in this house I have felt oppressed, out of my element, but I have called it something else and pushed it aside. From the first there have been things that troubled me, but often so nearly intangible that I only blame myself for not trusting people who were so kind to me. For they have been awfully kind. I couldn't half tell you the kindness that has been shown me, particularly by Mrs. Vauter, besides, of course, her brother Clarence. They shower kindness on me, in gifts, in pleasures, every way. Then, in spite of it, something will come up to make me feel that I don't understand them, not any of them, that they are strangers, even Clarence, sometimes. Their eyes affect me like shuttered windows. Without seeing into their minds enough to judge of what they are, I feel at those times that they are different from me, from us, from Papa and Mama, different enough to give me the queerest feeling of an abysmal gulf. Then all that will pass, and it will seem as if I had dreamed it, but it comes again at something else they say or do till I have moments of not being sure of anything in this world. Then there have been incidents, small things, but that put me on the alert, showing that there is more to discover behind and under what appears, which I have the conviction I should not find out by any asking. You must see from all this why it is I want you to mend for me. 
if i remain here in the middle of september i shall be married to clarence i shall have no choice that is all there is to it if i remain in their house now i wish and hope to marry him but i want to have a choice i don't want to marry him while there are moments when i feel him to be a total stranger and so at the thought of remaining here to have my will overborne by theirs or circumstances compel me i am frightened but i shall not remain here therefore need not be frightened because thank god i have my sister and she will come to my aid oh lydia how grateful how grateful i am that you are there the one the only soul in the world i have to turn to now you will be quick darling lydia won't you you won't let anything delay you it mayn't seem like a matter of life and death all i can say is that to me at this moment it is one. Oh, i implore you not to lose a minute dear because i shall have to play a part while i am waiting and i am not good at it besides hating it dreadfully with all the love in the world your own grace on that same day she went to the bank and drew out what money she had left so as to be ready to start if necessary at night in covert ways imperceptible even to sita she prepared facilities for swift departure it seemed to her that every eye brushing her must detect something unusual in her face her manner but no one made any reference to it she had figured out as closely as she could the number of days and hours that must pass before she could hear from her sister unless heaven should inspire her to telegraph she was not to be disappointed punctual as trains and mail deliveries punctual as lydia the letter came grace took it to her room for privacy sita dramatically cool and distant in her manner toward grace had taken her paper novel outdoors to read in the shadow of the elm with the letter actually in her hand grace felt with greater emphasis the huge difficulty of the task before her a comedy to play convincingly such a poor actress as she was but if any one were told he must pretend or be shot it seems likely he would make shift to pretend since she absolutely must she could get courage and art from somewhere it was the hour if ever for valor that quality with which her father had desired so strongly to arm her in provision for the time when he should no longer be there she tore open lydia's letter she read my dear grace i cannot imagine what you are talking about your letter sounds to me quite mad what is the matter nothing you tell me gives me any idea but that you are a nervous overwrought fanciful and have worked yourself into a panic i have been told by Beatty of an experience not uncommon to clergymen that the bride at the very ceremony instead of saying yes will say no it always turns out to be a case of nerves the overwork the excitement of getting ready to be married affects them that way after a day or two the couple who usually belong to low life come back to the parson the bride 
hanging her head and heartily ashamed of herself. Now, my dear little sister, I believe your case to be similar. It can be read in every line of your letter. There is not one real complaint you have to make or reason you have to give. If I should fall in with your plan, I should be acting like a fool, helping you to ruin your life. Just suppose that to accommodate you, I should tell the lie you prompt. What would happen? You would come to this out-of-the-way place, hundreds of miles from Mr. Overcome. How would that lead to knowing him better, as you seem to feel it necessary to do, before marrying him? The chances are that it would end the whole thing. I don't see him, do you, giving up business to follow you out here for the sake of gradually surmounting your objections? You seem determined to throw away your best chance in life, and I am not going to let you do it. You are morbid, that's the whole difficulty. Thinking of yourself and your own feelings, you lose all sense of proportion and reality. Your own feelings seem to you now, as they have always done, the most important thing in the world. To indulge a whim, you wish to take a step that will land you in the very same position from which you were overjoyed to be taken a few months ago by the man you now propose to throw overboard, after all his being so kind, as you yourself say, and showering you with presents and pleasures. Do please take a moment to look back and remember how discontented and down in the mouth you were. I wish I could show you a picture of yourself as I remember you, to incline you to overlook a few faults in the one to whom you owe your deliverance, and not to expect perfection from mere mortal man. Even if I didn't feel so strongly that as a matter of duty I must not comply with your request, the fact is that I couldn't do it. We haven't a home to offer you. We have hardly had time to turn round yet. We are living at the foster poor's, as you know, occupying their one spare room. Our things are still in packing boxes, waiting the time when we shall have found a house to suit us. Beatty is in with foster, and has invested the money. It can't be pulled up by the roots the very minute after it is planted. You will thank me for this grace, by and by, when you get over the particular fit of blues, or vapors, or megrims, or whatever it is that is queering your vision of things. You will see the matter exactly as I do, and own that I was right. In that certainty, I am reconciled to being regarded temporarily as a cruel monster. I am, nevertheless, your devoted, in the right sense, Sister Lydia. When Grace had finished, she pressed a hand to her forehead, then to her throat, in the futile way of persons for whose emotions the event is literally too large. The air trembled with a patter of laughter, accompaniment to a remark that did not find its way into sound. And I have been objecting to the people around me because of their moral vulgarity. But with time to think, Grace got a better grasp on herself. A spark dawned in her eye, which grew to be hot and steady, a signal light with which Winfred Ingalls would not have been dissatisfied. 
End of chapter 14